Chris Persons, but I am the pastor of discipleship here. Um, and uh, one of the roles I also do is I'm an elder here at the church. I'm one of five elders. And uh, you might not know this, but we have what we call the three D's, like our three roles as the elders that we try to pursue, like our purpose and direction, like clarity, right? So three D's, of course, it had to be alliterated for us to remember, right? Uh, that we really focus on as elders. The first one is direction. And that's one that we talk about a lot in the elder room and we love setting and casting vision and seeing, like seeking out what God would have for us to do next. And that's a fun D, right, to talk about. Then our next one is doctrine. I would say not as fun to talk about, unless you're like a nerdy person, then you might like it more. But uh, we certainly need to talk about what doctrine is and make sure that it stays pure and that we're lining up with what the Word of God says. So we we embrace that for sure. And then the last one of the D's, anyone guess? Discipline, right? Now this is like the ugly duckling of the three D's, right? And it's not the one that we want to talk about a whole lot. It's not the one that we want to spend a lot of time on. But we felt, as we've talked about instructions for the church, that the New Testament has a lot to say about how to deal with the unrepentant person, brother or sister, that may be in the church. And a lot of times that starts the church discipline process. We want to make sure that we're well informed what the Bible has to say so we're not just reacting one way or the other. And I would say most churches... um, tend to err on passivity when it comes to maybe church discipline. Um, Just from my experience and kind of talking and looking around and that kind of stuff. Um, There's a few churches that are probably err on the side of overly aggressive (laughs) in church discipline. Um, Hopefully we're never that church. It's really hard to find that balance. So I kind of pulled the elders even this week. Hey, where are we at? Do you think we're, you know, are we passive, aggressive, somewhere in the middle? And uh, thankfully, we haven't had a lot of situations come up that we've actually had to, like, put somebody through formal church discipline, all right? So we feel like it's an area that we're growing in, probably a little on the passive side, but kind of growing in as we come to a better understanding of what the elders are called to do and even a better understanding of what church discipline is all about. So we're growing in that. So let me pray, since it is a heavy topic, and Steve needs prayer. We're going to pray for him this morning, too. He's uh, heading out um, yesterday, I think it was, right, Kimberly? And spending a a week away, retreat, um, just to get refreshed spiritually, but also to try to figure out direction for the church for the next ministry year as far as the preaching calendar goes. So that's a big deal. So please, we'll pray for him this morning. I'll pray for him this morning, but will you remember Steve every day this week and uh, pray for him just to meet with God, have clarity, direction. Uh, for preaching calendar. All right, so let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we just pray that your spirit, we know its presence here, will you just meet us where we're at today? Uh, Lord, it's awfully hot in here, and it would be tempting for us just to think about flap doodles right now uh, after the service, and we're grateful that you provided that. But Lord, give us ears uh, to hear the word of God this morning. Somehow cool down this place, cool down us, Lord, that we wouldn't be distracted, but that we can press into your word and that we can see what it has to say, Lord, and then we can apply it to our hearts and lives, each of us, Lord. I thank you for Steve. I thank you for the leader that you've uh, given to Harvest Bible Chapel Rochester and his unique gifting, his passion uh, for your glory, his passion to see disciples be made. Lord, will you give him a clear vision, a clear direction of what to preach, what our people need to hear, and where you would have them to go in God's word this week, Lord? Will you encourage him this weekend, each and every day as he meets with you, Lord? Be easy to get discouraged. Be easy to get tired, Lord. Will you refresh his spirit even today? Uh, Lord, will you do that? We just pray these things in your son's name. Amen. 
First Corinthians 5, let's start in verse 1. It says, it is actually, it's like Paul's like, oh man, I can't believe this has actually happened, right? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Well, what can, where is he going with this? For a man has his father's wife. So we're here we're at the church of Corinth. Paul's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And there's a man in the church that's having sexual relationships with, right, either his mother or stepmother. We're not clear on that. But either way, it's very detestable, right? And so, it's gotten to the place where the church has tolerated or somewhat accepted it within the church. Even though Paul's saying like, hey, it's very clear that even the pagans or non-believers don't even accept that kind of practice. Why are you tolerating or accepting it within the church? There's something wrong here. Verse 2, it says, And you are ignorant. Ought you rather to mourn? Paul's like saying, you should be grieving over this sin. And obviously they were doing quite the opposite of that. If, even if you sneak ahead and look at verse 6, it says, You are boasting is not good. So this man is persistent in his sin and the church is coming around and, and accepting and tolerating this sin in some way glorifying this sin. Somehow this plot that deserves a, maybe a, a stage in the Jerry Springer show is actually front and center instead in the local church. Oh. If you haven't caught this yet, it's going to be a pretty heavy message this morning. No fluffy or cuteness kind of outlines or anything like that, but hopefully clear and straight from God's word. And it, let me tell you this, it's exceedingly, exceedingly important for our church that we understand this. It's exceedingly important for you and for me to understand how to deal with the unrepented brother. So number one, what should we, what should we my response be to the so-called brother or the one who persists in their sin, I choose not to tolerate their persistence in sin. I choose not to tolerate their persistence in sin. So how does the church get there? How does the church in Corinth even get to where they think this is somewhat okay and acceptable and boasting in it? I believe it's really bad theology. And I think this isn't the first time that Paul has been doing this or counteracting this. I think I'm going to share some verses in a moment that kind of show that. But somehow the church in Corinth believed um, that the more I sin, then the more I receive God's grace. And then therefore, somehow I'm more spiritual or somehow closer to God. So why not just sin more and grow in my faith in that way? It's bad theology. It's like hyper grace. And uh, this isn't the first time Paul had addressed this. On the screen, I got Romans 6, 1 and 2. It says, what should I say then, Paul? This is his words. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he said. So apparently there's some there that thought, well, maybe if I just keep on sinning, grace, God's grace will just keep on abounding even more so and more so. Galatians 5, 13 says, you are called to freedoms, brothers. This is Paul again saying, only do not use your freedoms as opportunity for the flesh. Is there opportunities? Is there freedoms in Christ? Yes. But don't use those freedoms or opportunities to persist in your sin. Romans 1, 32, once again, this is Paul. It says, uh, they, or though they know God's righteous decrees, so they're fully aware, this person's fully aware of what God's word says, 
that those who practice such things would deserve death, so, or to die, here, if we looked at Romans 1, which we're going to turn to a little bit later, like, there's a whole list of, like, detestable sins in Romans 1, right? So they know what God's word says, but yet, and they know the consequences of doing those sins, and it says they do not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. There's, like, this embracing of it, even. Jude 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were destinated for this condemnation, ungodly people who, and this is hard to read for me to read, who pervert the grace of God. Like, pervert and grace of God shouldn't be in the same phrase, should it? Like, I can hardly even read that. Into sexuality and denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how should we confront a person that is persistent in their sin? That they know their sin and they continue to do it anyway? Matthew 18, thankfully, Christ gives us a lot of light unto that. And I have the passage on the screen for you. First of all, it says, If your brother has sinned against you, go and tell his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, then you've gained a brother. So the first thing you really need to do is do the one-on-one thing, right? If somebody's offended you, you don't go tell somebody else. If somebody is in sin, you don't tell somebody else about the sin. You go to them and tell them about it. Hey, I think you might have a blind spot here. I think this is sin. Here's God's word, truth and love, right? And God's grace. I'm a sinner too, but here you go. And if they listen and they repent, then you've gained a brother. Now, the beautiful thing, God is in the business of restoration, right? So this whole point of this passage is to bring your brother or sister back to the Lord, to bring him to repentance, to show grace and love and truth all in one, right? So if they return, then it stops. But if they don't, keep on reading, it says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. All right, so if he refuses to listen, there is no repentance, then bring another one or two people with you to this and have a meeting of minds. And in that meeting of minds, there might be, if I'm bringing somebody against something, the witnesses might say, Chris, you're just off on this. That person's fine. Or they might say, uh, you both have things to work on, right? Or they might say, yes, this person is persistent in prayer. You need to repent. And if they repent, once again, you've gained a brother, right? Restoration has happened. But if they are persisted in the sin, what's the next step? If he refuses to listen to them, then tell the church. Get the church leadership involved. Get the whole church involved, it says. And if he repents at that time, then once again, you've gained a brother or sister in the Lord. Praise the Lord. But if he refuses to listen, the last one, if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Which, what Christ is saying, treat them then as an unbeliever. We're not judging and saying you are saved or you are not saved. We're just saying you're saying that you're saved, but your behavior, your lifestyle is totally contrary to what a follower of Jesus Christ is. We don't know if we're saved. God's word makes it clear that we are to treat you, though, as an unbeliever at that time, a tax collector or a Gentile, even. Realize this whole process. When we talk about discipline, it has negative con right? Because um, a lot of people have used, abused discipline, whether in the church or in the home or that kind of stuff. 
biblical discipline, the way it's supposed to be, is supposed to be a very beautiful thing and has the best interest of that person in mind to call them to repentance and also has the best interest of the church in mind as well. It's to be done out of an act of love for the brother and sister in Christ. So when do you confront? Now, you think of like Romans 7, like Paul is really transparent about his wrestling with the flesh and spirit. He's like, why do I do the things I don't want to do and I know better and I still do it at times? That's not the type of person we're looking for, for, all right? The person that is maybe, for example, came to your small group swimming in their sin, um, but still having struggles in it, but maybe they're now knee-deep in their sin. That's progression, right? We're seeing... They're repenting. They're making progress. And eventually we hope that they're only ankle deep in their sin, right? That's not the type of person that we're looking here, right? We've called them to repentance. We said, hey, what you're doing is not good. And they're making progress. We're not looking for people that are actually wrestling, right? With the flood. Like, I know this is what I should do. And they're embracing it. And they're trying it um, to lean into God's word and lean into community and do the things that God's calling them to do. That's not the person we're looking for here. So let me um, make it clear clear what we're looking for instead, when to confront, uh, when they pursue their sin more than their Savior. When their pursuit of their sin is greater than their pursuit of their Savior. Like everything, not everything, they still dabble in the spiritual world, right? But they're more about pursuing their own sin than Jesus Christ. That's a, a red flag saying, yeah, that I think they might, this might be a stronghold in your life. This is something that you're pretty persistent on. When they are committed to what they want over the word. You open up God's word and you're like, hey, you know, I love you. Uh, you know, I got my issues too, but this is what God's word has to say about this. And they're just like, I know that, but I still want to do what I want to do. All right? They're choosing what they want over what the word of God even says. Uh, when their behavior does not match their spoken beliefs. All right? When I am say I'm a Christian, I'm say I'm a follower of Christ, but then their lifestyle is defined by something else other than that. When their conduct is damaging to the name of Christ. I think we get that in 1 Corinthians 5 even, right? Like even the outsiders, even the unbelievers say this is wrong. Right? Do you think that's damaging to the name of the church or Christ? Let's have negative ramifications. Do you go to that church? What do they teach there? What's the difference, right? So if, if their conduct is damaging to the name of Christ, and lastly, when their sinful desires lead to death. When I think of death, I think of utter destruction, right? This usually happens in the, the realm of relationships. People that love them the most get pushed farther away. Broken marriage, broken kid, relationship with kids, broken relationships within a church because what they want to do, their sinful desires are so strong, they can see the suffering around them, but they still want to keep on going that way. That's persistent in their sin. James 4.1 speaks of this a little bit. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this, that your passions or your desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So what do you do? You murder. That's pretty extreme. That's death. That's destruction. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight in your quarrel. There's at some point where your desires uh, went from a desire to demand. And that in becoming demand, you're willing to do anything it took to meet that desire, even if it meant continual sin. 
The responsibility of the church discipline does not squarely fall upon the elders of the church. Everyone who, who calls this body their home is to be an active part in calling one another to restoration and repentance. Remember Matthew 18? We all have that responsibility to do the one-on-one or the one on, with two or three others. That falls on each of us. Where does this happen the most at harvest? In small group. In a lot of ways, we're active in church discipline every time we break out into accountability, the first phases of it, right? Like, hey, Jared, I see this in you. Like, what you're doing is not good. Like, here's what God's word has to say. And knowing Jared, I know he would say, yeah, I need to look into that. I maybe need to repent of that, right? And then it ends, right? And it's a beautiful thing because he's restoring his relationship with God in that moment. Proverbs 18, uh, 1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks, or whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and breaks out against all sound judgment. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't be that person. Right? That's why we have such a strong reinforcement of like, do life together, right? How many one another's are in scriptures? The best part you can do that is in the small group setting, right? Come underneath the protection right, for your own spiritual well-being, roll under one another, prefer and submit to one another, and invite other people to talk God's word into your life, right, so that you can grow and not have blind spots of sin in your life. We can do it together. Not to get defensive, right, but to accept and invite other people to speak the truth of God's word. Best place we do this is in small group, uh, for sure. So if you're a small group leader, just raise your hand quick. Got lots of small group leaders here this morning. Praise the Lord. I'm grateful for your small group leaders. And uh, they don't know this, but at the end of the service, small group leaders, I actually want you to come down forward, all right, and make yourself available. Um, if anyone wants to pray with you, that'd be awesome. Make yourself available, too, because... Um, the invitation for everyone here is if you're not part of a small group, that you would also join a small group to protect yourself from being a man of destruction, seeking your own desires, get involved in community, and come up front here and get connected with a small group leader, all right? So we'll, we'll have you do that, and then that's one way that we can help, all right? That's why we can work together towards a healthy church, right? The first step of church discipline, so it's great. Let's keep reading uh, verse 2. The end of verse 2 says, Let him who has done this be removed, underline the word removed, from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has did such a thing. Paul is saying, you know, I've already made a judgment call on this person. Like, why haven't you done anything yet, church? Verse 4, when you are assembled, the word assembled usually in the New Testament means like as you assemble together as the church. So as you assemble together as the church, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when the Holy Spirit is present, with the power of Jesus behind you, you're to do these things, right? So um, when we're assembled together, we're supposed to go and not tolerate sin, right? If God's spirit is here in his presence and we're worshiping with the name of Christ, we cannot tolerate the person who persists in their sin. Instead, verse five, you are to deliver, underline the word deliver, this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of Lord. 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This destruction of the flesh refers to divine chastening for that person's sin by God. The unrepentant may suffer greatly under God's judgment, but then in doing so, as we deliver or remove them from the church, they are not allowed to have an evil influence within the church anymore. We need to understand that that person who persists in their sin is more likely to come to repentance, as it says in verse 5, like deliver him to his own destruction so that he hopefully will come to repentance, a saving knowledge, right? That person, if we release him, will most likely come to repentance under God's judgment and wrath than if we hang on to him and tolerate and accept their persistence in sin. What should be my response to the so-called brother number two? I need to release them to their own destruction. I need to release them to their own destruction. I think it's pretty clear that's what is happening here and Paul is urging the church in Corinth to do, right? You can see it right from the text. Does does it say anything anywhere else about something like this? Keep your finger in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, but turn over to Romans 1 as well. Let's look at how God deals with the one who's persistent in their sin. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from the heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right? That's what unrighteous, ungodly people do. You bring them the truth, and they're going to suppress it. They're going to be like, eh, I don't know about that. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's like right in front of them. Because God has shown it to them already. So they understand it's right in front of them. For it is his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Even creation itself demands that there is a God and that they should turn to him in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All right? So when you go... Um, to the unrepentant brother and say, hey, what you're doing is not good. Expect excuses, though, all right? They're without excuse, but expect excuses. Expect the blame game. Expect to blame the church, blame the small group, blame uh, your family or their family. Explain to blame their spouse, blame God. All right? Expect that, but they're without excuse, this says. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they became futile in their thinking. It's like irrational in their thinking. And their foolishness hearts were darkened so they couldn't even see things clearly because their sin had darkened their hearts. Claiming to be wise, right? Oh, no, wait, wait. Chris, you really don't know me as well as I know me, right? I got this figured out. I got I, I it under control, right? Claiming to be wise, I know better than you. They became fools. So how did God respond to them? Verse 24. This is God's response to the unrepentant person. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Really? Verse 26, skip down. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Not convinced yet, 
Yet, verse 28, and since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to be based, depraved mind to do what not ought to be done. If God gives up or releases that person to their own sin, why do we think that we then need to hold on to them tighter instead? Do we really believe that we can change them or that maybe it's best if God is the one who judges them and let the wrath of God come down to them in hopes that they come about to repentance? I think the best uh, biblical illustration uh, that we can see of this is Luke 15. You don't need to turn there, read it later. Luke 15 is the prodigal son, right? The father in that story is actually representing God the father, right? And one of his sons, right, we represent the sons, right, decides to, he's done with God, the father, right? He, he takes in his inheritance and he goes and he wants to live the high life and do whatever he wants to do. Basically, he's like, I'm off, see you later. We know the story goes that he lived the high life and did whatever thing that he wanted to do, all his sins, and then that led to his destruction, his demise, and it says that he was even living amongst the pigs, right? He had nothing left. He was in a place of the lowest point of his life. And through that, what did he do? Because God was willing to release him. The father was willing to release him. He got so low, what happened? He came back, right? He came back. And God the father then says he ran to him and embraced him. And he clothed him in his righteousness. I think this is really, if not the hardest thing, it's not one of the hard, it's maybe one of the hardest things that God, his word calls us to do, to release somebody to their own destruction. That's hard. We love them, right? We've done life with them. We care for them. We want their own repentance even more than they want it, right? But at least I can say I fall at times in thinking that I can change this person. If I just extend a little bit more love, if I just extend a little bit more grace, this person will then follow God. Instead, this person is perverting the grace of God that's been extended to them. And they're destroying others in their wake. This is on us. We are trusting ourselves to be their savior instead of Christ. You and I cannot be their savior. So we need to release them, as God's word says, to their own desires. So that they, that God can be their savior instead so what's our responsibility when we release them? Not to forget about them, right? We still love them, so we're going to pray for them. We're going to trust God's judgment on them, and we're going to hope for their future salvation and repentance. That's what we're going to do. Let's continue reading in uh, chapter 5, verse 6. It says, your boasting is not good. We've already covered that. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
What is Paul saying? He says, when sin is tolerated or accepted within the church, it will permeate and corrupt the whole church as a whole. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In most cases in the scripture, not all, but most cases, leaven represents the influence of evil. So he says, if you let evil permeate the church, it's going to spread. It's going to continue to destroy the church. Verse 7, cleanse out. There's another strong word, right? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. All right, this is a powerful verse to unpack. Just as the unleavened bread in the Old Testament symbolized being free from Egypt by the Passover, that's Exodus 12, all right? So remember the Passover when um, God delivered the Israelites from Egypt and their oppression there, right? And it was symbolic by the Passover, so they celebrate the Passover. Um, unleavened, or, uh, the unleavened bread represents that, that they've been separated from that dominion of sin and death um, since that separation and sin and death in our lives, uh, we have the perfect Passover lamb who is what? In this text, Jesus Christ. The church then is obligated uh, to remove everything that is sinful to be separate from our old life, including persistent sin. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old unleavened, the, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In contrast to the Old Testament Passover a feast that was celebrated annually to recognize their deliverance from the Egyptians. As believers, we constantly celebrate the feast of the Passover, uh, who is Jesus Christ, the perfect Passover, the Lamb of God. We can do that each and every day. As Jews who celebrated the Passover do so with unleavened bread, uh, so believers celebrate their continued Passover with unleavened lives. That we are committed to continual repentance and turning to the Lord and sensitive and clear hearts. That's our dedication and responsibility. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexual immoral people. So we understand that Paul had already written one letter to the church in Corinth, all right? And in that letter he said, don't associate with immoral people. Verse 10, not all meaning the sexual, sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the slanderers or the idolatrous since then you would need to go out of the world. All right, so somewhere in that first letter that he said, hey, this is not good, right? You don't associate with the sexually immoral. The church took the previous letter and misunderstood it, misinterpreted it, all right? They took it as Paul was asking you to dissociate from the ungodly world. So they're like severing off the unbelievers. They're just like done. So much for a missions program, right? And the church or compassion. They're just like, okay, we'll just isolate ourselves and do our own thing. So that's what they thought they meant. And then they're still allowing sin to persist within the body where Paul meant the opposite of what they interpreted it. Verse 11, but now I am writing you, to, you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of the bro a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry, rubber, drunken, or swinder. I think we all can agree that that list is not the full list. He's just giving examples, right? And not to even eat with such a person. Somebody who calls himself a believer in Christ, but their lifestyle persists in going the opposite direction of what a Christ follower would do. It says, remove, purge, cleanse, all these strong words to deliver from, and don't even eat with such a person. 
Now, what's interesting, um, if you look at this verse in other translations, it's the first part of it. Uh, you have the ESV, or most of you do, like I do. It says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. The NIV, NIV says it a little bit different. It says, but now I'm writing you uh, that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother and sister. So it's kind of like a little bit more like, oh, maybe they're not really truly a brother or sister in the Lord, right? I think the NASB says it's best. Um, New American Standard is known for being really literal to the text. It says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with anyone, any so-called brother. That's the literal of what they say, so-called. And that's where the title of my message came from, how to deal with the so-called brother who's unrepentant in their sin. Because if you're like me, I, I'm black and white. I got I got my bucket of believers over here, and I got my bucket of unbelievers. But I don't know what to do with the person that calls themselves a believer, but their lifestyle is totally inconsistent. Well, God says don't judge and call them a believer or unbeliever. He just says treat them as an unbeliever or a non-believer and stick them on the so-called brother pile, right? They could be saved. They could not be saved. But we're going to treat them as that because we're going to bring the gospel to them. We're going to bring and call them to repentance, all right? Be a so-called uh, brother or sister in the Lord means that as elders, um, as, a as a church, as elders, uh, the church can no longer really affirm your salvation. All right? We're not saying that you're saved or unsaved. We're just saying we're moving our affirmation upon that. All right? So if you think of step three, which are membership interviews, there's four membership commitments. The last three are worship, walk, and work. What's the first one? Yeah, believer in Jesus Christ, saved and baptized, right? So at that time of commitment to membership, we say, okay, we hear your testimony. You hear what God's working on. We say, we're basically saying we're affirming your salvation in that time, right? You're, you're a follower of Christ. This would be the opposite of that. Like, because your persistence in sin, we're no longer feel comfortable affirming. We don't know if you're saved or not. We're just being real. That's why we call you so-called, right? We don't know if you're saved. So we're removing our affirmation of your salvation. You might be saved. You might not be saved, but either way, we're calling you to repentance, all right? So we're removing our affirmation is what we're doing. Therefore, you no longer can be the member of the church. We're going to treat you as a believer. Your greatest need is salvation and general repentance instead. Verses 12 and 13, 4, what I have to do with judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you should judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What should, I, what should my response be to the so-called brother number three? I will protect the purity of the church. I'll protect the body of Christ. I will protect the bride of Christ who died, who he died for. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because I think we have a pretty intelligent church here, all right? I just told you you need to judge, or uh, let me back up. Paul just told you, God just told you you need to judge people with inside the church, right? Two weeks ago, see, basically told you not to judge one another, right? So, are we contradicting each other? Are we off? No. Let me teach you a little bit something about context, right? When we interpret God's word, we say context is king. Context of the passage, context of the book of the whole, context of the Bible as a whole, all right? So, let me uh, hit on one other judgment passage, and that's Matthew 7. I'll have it on the screen for you here again. The first, first one said, Ju judge not, that's as Christ speaking, that you may not be judged. So some people say, hey, we have no obligation to ever judge because Christ says, do not judge, right? 
That's what they'll say, right? And I'm thinking, I even heard this like at times, whether in small group or in a close community, they're like, hey, I have no reason to judge you because, uh, and then because who am I to judge you and, and then you shouldn't judge me back. And it sounds like a very um, humble statement, but in a lot of ways, isn't that really pride veneered in humility? I would say, like, I really don't want you pressing into my business. <laughs> so I'm just going to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to judge you. So don't bother about judging me too. <laughs> right? Is what, really what you're saying. And uh, in that context, it's, it's not, that's not the full story. What did Christ go on to say? If we pull up the rest of the passage, it says, uh, Christ went on to say, for the judgment you pronounce will be judged, you will be judged. And with the measure... You used it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice log in your own eye? Or how can you uh, say to your brother, let me take out the speck in your eye uh, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. That's the key words there, right? First take out the log in your own eye, and then, and then once you remove your own log, you'll see clearly the speck out of your brother's eye. So the point of this passage is that Christ isn't teaching or telling us not to judge. He's telling us, don't be a plank face. <laughs> don't be hypocritical in your judging, right? That's the point he's going after is like, you can't be a plank face when picking out toothpicks in other people's eyes when you get this big thing here. Don't be hypocritical. But what does he say in the passage? When you remove the plank from your own face, then what happens? Then you can see clearly to help your brother remove this back right? So there's the element I'm still going to confront. I'm still going to bring it to you. I'm still going to judge and try to help you call to repentance. Listen, I had this big plank in my life. I repented. You got this little thing. You can overcome it. I'll help you. I'm here for you, right? So Steve's message two weeks ago wasn't intended to teach the whole council on judgment. It was to teach on Romans 14 about judgment, right? So write this down for clarity, all right? Find some space in your notes. It's not on the screen. Romans 14, what Steve taught on. And this is actually Steve's insight, all right? So this is me speaking for Steve, basically. So he's the genius that came up with this, and he affirms it for sure. Romans 14, on the minor's tolerance, do not judge. Preferences or conscience issues that may be different, those aren't the things that you should be judging about. Or you get somebody new in the church, new believer, right? It's going to take them a while to get there and to further the walk with Christ, right? So they're going to be going through a lot of things. Don't judge in those situations, right? Don't think of hot, be haughty in mind. And those things, don't judge. So Romans 14 speaks on the, on the minor's tolerance. Do not judge. 1 Corinthians 5, on the major's convictions, right? The things that are obviously sin and and things that remain unrepentant in some areas heart, we are to judge them. But do it with the right heart, right? Don't be a plain face. Do it with the right motives for their best interests in mind. And then with both of these, you got to mark this somewhere on your sheet too, right? And all with love, right? Whether major or minors, all with love, knowing that Christ is the ultimate judge and he'll judge both the major and the minors, all right? Does that make sense? Is that more clear then? What the Bible has to say? So really, this, is, this message today is not contradictory. It's really complementary to a holistic Bible view of what judgment should be or not be. So are you to release the person for the sake of purity 
uh, in the church is the most loving thing that I can do for that person, knowing that that is the best avenue at that time that might bring them about to repentance. It's also the most loving thing that I can do for the church to keep it pure and set apart for Jesus Christ. Once again, just to make it clear, we're not looking for blind spots here, right? You're driving a car, you have blind spots. It's hard to see, right? Sometimes in our Christian walk, we have blind spots too. Jeremy might come to me in my, we're not in a small group, but if you were, you might say, hey, Chris, you got, pretty aware that you can't see this, but like this is an issue, you know? And I want people like Jeremy to do that with me in small group. At first, I might get a little defensive. I might not see it clearly, but maybe through his persistence of bringing me to it with the truth and with grace and with love, then I will see it more clearly. So we're not going after people with blind spots in our life, right? We're showing them God's word and we're calling to repentance, but that's not what church discipline is for, is blind spots. I'll say it this way. I would say that really what we're looking for um, is proud spots, all right? So, you ever had dice in the 80s? I had some dice. I know I'm talking to most people that weren't born in the 80s yet, but (laughs) I had some dice, and this is going to represent not my blind spot in my car, but my proud spot, right? And uh, I'm going to come to small group, and I'm going to show up with my fuzzy dice here, and Jeremy's going to be like, hey, what you're doing there, you know, um, doesn't look so good. And I'm like, no, I love these, man. These are like, I've always wanted a pair of dice, and they're purple, and they're flashy. Like, I love these. Like, I've always wanted these, Jeremy. Why can't you just understand? And he's like, well, look at from God's word. And I'm like looking at God's word, right? And uh, yeah, I can kind of see what you say, Jeremy. I don't know. But I think you don't understand, like, I'm finally happy, Jeremy. Why can't you just be happy for me that I got these purple dice that I've always wanted, right? They're soft and cushy and like, this is like not a blind spot. This is a proud spot, right? This is what the persistent sinner or persistent brother and sister will do, right? They'll post it off and then now I'm taking pictures and posting on social media, right? On Twitter and all those things as well. Those are proud spots, not blind spots, We need to remove those. It says get rid of those within the church with proud spots that are choosing to hang on to their sin more than they are to Jesus Christ. To protect the body means the opposite is really not to neglect the bride of Christ anymore, right? Like, oh, I don't know if I want to protect the church. Do you want to neglect it then? We're called to protect it instead. Elders can lean on this. But as church, we need the church to follow. We needed to do this in small group during accountability time. We need to press into one another. All those verses that we prayed over at the beginning of the service, right? We need to be a church that those, does those things. It's the hard thing, but it's the best thing. And even though we kind of cringe, it's like, yeah, I do want that. It's going to be hard, but I do want that. And I want that for each of you as well. So just in conclusion right? Instructions for the church, my response to the so-called brother, the unrepentant sinner, number one, I choose not to tolerate their persistence in sin. This is somebody who's persistent, who's stuck, and willingly stuck in their sin. Number two, I need to release them to their own destruction. So hard. So hard. But God's in control. He is sovereign. God can bring them back. Number three, I will protect not neglect the purity of the church. It's what's best for the whole. The song that they're going to sing is Your Mercy, and I love it, right? 
Like we talk a lot about God's grace, but God's mercy is about with him withholding out the wrath that we really deserve, even as Christians, as believers, as we still waddle in sin at times. And his mercy, his loving kindness, his patience, his gentleness gives us an opportunity to repent over and over and over again. As I sing the words, I want you to do a couple of things. I want you to think about, man, is there something in my life that I haven't told my small group yet? And uh, maybe today can be today as the small group leaders come up. Small group leaders, you start coming up. Um, maybe you need to go up and be like, hey, I don't want to be the person that isolates himself. I want community. I want help. And you need to know this. And I'm doing this as a first step of repentance today, seeking the Lord. Small group leaders are also up here, right? If you want to be a part of a small group, if you want to live in the context of community, I want that for you. But today you could join one of these. Hey, just pick, you might not know anyone up here. Just pick the best looking one and go up and say, hey, I want to join your small group. All right. And uh, kind of go from there. All right. We would love to get you plugged in. So you don't have to do life alone, that you can have people that will lovely press into you. All right. Think about your mercy. Think about your action step. What does God have me to do today?